0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: We may say that we have the birth of a new science, a new philosophy, a new life. The time of deliverance has come at last, and henceforward the career of humanity is upward and onward a mighty, a noble, and a godlike career. All the revelations of spiritualism heretofore, all the control of spirits over mortals, and the instruction and discipline they have given us have only paved the way, as it were, for the advent of a great practical movement, such as the world little dreams of... Though it has long deeply yearned for it and agonized and groaned away its life because it did not come sooner. And this new motive power is to lead the way in the great speedily coming salvation. It is to be the physical savior of the race. The history of its inception, its various stages of progress, and its completion will show the world a most beautiful and significant analogy to the advent of Jesus as the spiritual savior of the race. Hence, we most confidently assert that the advent of the science of all sciences, the philosophy of all philosophies, and the art of all arts has now fairly commenced. The child is born, not long hence he will go alone, then he will dispute with the doctors and the temples of science, and then...
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe,
1: what is, what is going on here? I'm reading a quote. This is a quote from a Boston newspaper, the June 28th, 1854 edition of a Boston newspaper called The New Era, or Heaven Opened to Man. And this passage was written by a former Universalist minister named Simon Hewitt. So after this passage, one skeptical reader named Emma Hardinge commented that, quote, nothing could be given further beyond vague hints of what was to follow the awful then which broke off breathless at the contemplation of its own inexpressible possibilities. So, All this preamble to something amazing that's going to change humanity. What on earth could Simon Hewitt have been talking about? Well, he was referring to something that sat inside the upper room of a large tower overlooking the coast beyond the town of Lynn, Massachusetts. This is High Rock Tower. If you want to look it up, you can see a picture of this place. It still exists to kind of get a sense of it. And inside the upper room of this tower were... The fruits of what I would sort of think of as the ultimate backyard engineering project. (laughs) It is like garage engineering gone to the extreme. So from July 1853 to the following spring in 1854, a group of universalist reformers and spiritualist enthusiasts had been building a machine called the new motor. And it would be something I'd say probably never seen before on Earth, an electromechanical messiah. Yes, uh, which um, you know, this will bring to mind a, a number
0: of different uh, stunning visuals, uh, which we would like to uh, dissuade you from. <laughs> uh, we'll make sure we have some links to some images of the uh, the electrical Messiah in question on the landing page for this episode. But, but if you think about a Dalek from Doctor Who, from Doctor Who, if a Dalek were to breed with a coffee table.
1: Uh, their offspring right. would and then probably resemble this. Be, be, uh, decorated with many like dangling Christmas ornaments. Yes, yes. So it's uh, a, a
0: hybrid of a coffee table and a dialect decorated for Christmas and serving as kind of, kind of an altarpiece as well. There's
1: certainly an altarpiece vibe to this creation. Sure. And this is bridging two worlds that we tend to see as sort of I don't know what spectrum it is, but they're, whatever it is, they're at the opposite ends of the spectrum. One is religion, Mm -hmm. and the other is technology. I mean, we typically think of religion as a very low-tech affair. Uh, you tend to go into churches, I don't know, maybe not some churches these days, but you see a lot of stuff that recalls an earlier time, and our religious texts in most of the major religions of the world are very ancient, and thus the metaphors in which we talk about our religions tend to be very ancient. And technology is, you know, it's the very essence of what is new and what the future is. I mean, what is science fiction that imagines the future usually focused on? It's new technology.
0: Yeah, I mean, most of the major world religions, yeah, you know, they're based on ancient cosmologies that... Uh Sometimes uh we are okay with updating um, generally, at certain points in in the past, we will say, "All right, we're going to actually change this a little bit to uh, to fit how we live now, but for the most part, yeah, they're rooted in the past, and technology is ever rooted in the present and in the future.
1: right, but today we want to discuss what happens when you cram the ends of that spectrum together mm-hmm. and you create techno-religion. So what happens when technology changes religions? What happens when technology becomes a component of religious practice? And what happens when technology becomes a god or messiah in itself? Right. And this is something that has been happening for ages. Uh, if you think
0: of technology in the broader sense, especially humans have always been developing new technologies, developing gadgets, uh, developing um more uh, advanced ways of just looking at the world around them and manipulating the world around them, and this has always gone hand in hand with our ability to understand the purpose of life and the purpose of uh, of our
1: existence here on earth, yeah, and the concept of purpose is also built into the idea of technology uh, because we typically think of technology as like a machine or a mechanism that does a particular job. But if you look at the standard dictionary definition of technology, it's going to say something like the practical application of scientific knowledge toward a purpose. So keep all of that in mind. Keep those definitions in mind as we explore the convergence of
0: technology
1: and religion. Yeah. So I was wondering, what are some of the earliest examples of the religious use of a machine? Like you can only think Mm -hmm. back so far. I mean, uh, of course, nowadays people might, I don't know, read devotional literature on their iPad or something. But is there anything people have been doing for hundreds or thousands of years with machines to help them in their spiritual journeys? Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, we have a couple of really good examples of this. The first of which is
0: the prayer wheel, which uh, I imagine most people have seen uh, images or footage of these, particularly if you've ever you know, traveled uh, uh, into the, into uh, into East Asia or had any kind of contact with uh, with with Buddhism, but uh, these uh, tend to be uh, we're talking about a wheel and spindle composed of uh, various materials. You'll find them made uh, made out of you know ornate uh, metals. You'll find them made out of stone. You'll find them made out of leather and cotton, and it uh, it's a physical manifestation of the turning wheel of Dharma in Buddhism.
1: Okay, so. Physically to picture this, is it going to be kind of like one of those like a uh, game prize wheels? Uh, sort of. So, I mean, it's uh, it's it's not positioned vertically; it's positioned
0: kind uh, horizontally. It kind of, if, if you were just an outsider looking at it and you knew nothing about Eastern religion, you, you might you might equate it with with some sort of a doodad at a child's playground, right? Just something that seems like you just spin it and it's cool to spin. Okay. But of course, it has far more purpose right. than that within the, the context of the religion. Um, so the wheel of Dharma. Yeah, the wheel of Dharma, and uh, and and it's all tied in with uh, you know accumulating good karma, purifying bad karma, uh, because you uh, you spin this wheel, and in, in spinning the prayer wheel, you are uh, assisting uh, yourself with the uh, with with the purging of bad karma and the accumulation of the good. Huh. And this is accomplished. Uh, by the fact that, I mean, on top of the, the wheel being this, uh, this, this gadget, this device that, uh, that, that represents this, um, this cosmological idea, uh, the prayers are also filled with up to a mile of prayers. Um, so we're talking uh, mantras and sutras generally written in Sanskrit. And uh, the prayers are recited each time the wheel makes a revolution. So a pilgrim spins the wheel, and with each spin, helps helps them gain merit and uh, to concentrate the mind on the, the mantras and, and sutras that are being re, uh, react, reenacted by the wheel.
1: Oh, okay. So much in the way that, say, a lever or a pulley might upgrade our ability to do physical work, mm-hmm. this wheel can upgrade our ability to do spiritual work.
0: Yeah, it's. I guess like, one way to think of it would be think about a cassette player, right? Yes. Um, Say you're just a really huge fan of, uh, I don't know, what's your, fa- what's your favorite metal album, your favorite rock and roll al- album? Uh, Dope Throne. Dope Throne. Who's that by?
1: Electric Wizard. Oh, okay. All
0: right. Well, let's say you're, you particularly love Dope Throne. And so you have a cassette of Dope Throne, but that cassette doesn't actually play. Just the But imagine just the, the mere act of that tape filtering through the machine and revolving around that wheel somehow uh, enacted the spirit
1: of that album for you. Okay. okay. That's kind of what's going on so here. So it gives you the, the essence or the aura of Dope Throne without the sounds having to play.
0: Right. And, and, and ideally, I think, uh, my understanding, too, is that you would also focus the mind on Dope Throne. So it's not just uh, saying, I'm turning this machine instead of thinking about it. I'm doing both. Okay. But um, but where this gets uh, really interesting is when you, for instance, when you look at the fact that until the 20th century, virtually the only Tibetan use for the wheel was as a device for activating these mantras, so that the wheel was, was virtu- virtually went unused there as a physical uh, tool, as a technology for you know moving things around or crushing things, etc. It was used almost exclusively as a religious technology. Wow! Yeah. Um, now that's not to say that all prayer wheels are turned by hand. That's kind of the main one you see, and it's certainly the one that often makes the. Uh, the biggest impression visually that's a amani wheel but there are also varieties that are turned by fire uh
1: water wind um electricity hold on a second <laughs> so we've got an electric prayer karma machine
0: yes yeah it's and this is where it gets, it gets really interesting because yeah because it's one thing to say all right this one is spun by hand because also i'm the human i mean. this kind of at the center of this religious thing, right? It's another to say the fire or the wind or the air is going to move, it because those are natural forces uh, created by the gods, right?
1: Yeah, well, that makes me think of an analogy, like if you look to medieval Catholicism, where you might have chantries that are, uh, where, say, a wealthy person or member of the gentry could pay people to pray, mm. and the more prayers that the monks would say in these chantries based on the amount they paid could lessen their stay in purgatory. I wonder if, you know, if they'd had this kind of technology at the time, would they think, well, would it be okay to say the number of prayer machines you build, uh, could lessen your stay in purgatory? Um. Could, like, could you get one of those, uh, text-to-speech synthesizers (laughs) to say prayers? You know, I don't know. I would
0: definitely love to hear from someone, uh, with more insight into the, uh, the, the rules of, uh, of Tibetan Buddhism and these uh, prayer wheels they, because it would seem like you could just buy a bunch of these things and just set them up, plug them in, and let them go, and then maybe just completely externalize your uh, your karma situation. Um, yeah, they call these uh, Thardo Corlos, and uh, you can keep them running 24 hours a day uh, using a 4.5-volt uh, DC electric current. Uh, and then... And so, yeah, you can just keep it running all the time, presumably when you're sleeping, when you're eating, when you're doing things that uh, I assume uh, do not involve the, uh, the the mental concentration. It's like a karmic force field generator. Exactly, yeah. And this is even crazier when you think of another uh, technological uh, uh, innovation that you see with the prayer wheels, and that's that you can also find microfilm prayer wheels that contain more uh, can even more than a million mantras inside them. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you... Between microfilm technology and uh, and just simple electric uh, you know uh, technology to create a spinning wheel, um, you can really sort of change your your karma game. It seems
1: the microfilm is especially interesting to me. It seems like that's almost like a uh, religious implementation of the idea of nanotechnology, like yeah. accomplishing <laughs> more in a smaller space. It makes me
0: wonder, and and perhaps someone has has done something along these lines, but why even deal with the physical wheel? What if you took the wheel virtually? You could have, I mean, what would the limits? There would um, pretty much be no limits, right? I mean, you could have an an absurd number of mantras moving through a wheel at uh, pretty much any kind of uh, rate you want.
1: Like you could create a computer program that, executes a subroutine that is just a list of these mantras, and then you could tell it to loop infinitely.
0: Yeah, kind of a a karmic defragging system just running in the background out of your uh, your computer at all times.
1: Yeah, and of course, so this is kind of our outsider's perspective, but I'm sure somebody who uh, is actually believing in and using these sorts of prayer wheels would have a pretty good and well-thought-out explanation for why you can use technology to achieve... A karmically significant event in one way, but not in another way. It might totally make sense in terms of how they interpret their spirituality.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think anytime you see this convergence of technology and uh, religion, it, it it becomes the domain of uh, of the, the the priest or the priest class or somebody in some sort of uh, you know clerical authority to say, all right, this is the line. This right. is this is how far technology can come into the sanctuary. Right. It's okay to. Uh, You know, read your hymnal or your Bible on an iPad, but it's not okay to do X, Y, or Z.
1: It makes me want to ask the question, why on that spectrum I talked about earlier where we have, you know, the ancient religion on one hand and the new technology on the other, why are they so far apart? Like, what is the inherent profanity in technology? Hmm. It does kind of seem crass when you see, like, uh, when you see a religious service taking place on a jumbotron or something like that. Why is that? Like, what is wrong with the technology or what is necessarily unspiritual about it? I don't know the answer, but there seems to be an intuition like that that we have. Well, I guess so much of it is rooted in, in uh,
0: tradition, you know? I mean, uh, like, I've I definitely had that moment before where I've been at a, a church service and uh, the uh, the person giving the sermon... Or, uh, you know, her officiating at a wedding has been reading off of, uh, of a Kindle or a, or a, you know, a pad of some kind. Yeah, it
1: looks inappropriate.
0: Yeah, I and mean, I think it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that religions tend to be inherently traditional, especially the older, you know, traditional religions. So just the, the image of modern technology, especially when you think of technology as this thing that's such a, a mastery, uh, of, uh, you know, of, of human skill and ability to see that, uh, uh, you know, shoehorned in with these things that are supposedly given to us from uh, some sort of a higher power.
1: Yeah. yeah, though I wonder if people in the ancient world would have thought about it in the same way. I mean, this again calls to mind something we talked about the last time I was on the show when we talked about eclipses, mm-hmm. uh, which is the Antikythera mechanism. Oh, yeah, it was an ancient Greek device. It's often referred to as the world's oldest computer or the first computer. Now, obviously, it didn't have micro processors or anything, but this was a device that comes from more than 2,000 years ago, was found in a shipwreck in the Mediterranean, and it was an ancient mechanical computer for, for computing the locations of celestial objects, Mm -hmm. and for like predicting lunar eclipses and solar eclipses in the future. And the interesting thing about this is it's an amazingly advanced piece of technology for the time, just astoundingly advanced. But these events, these celestial mechanics, had religious significance to the people who used it. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's certainly something we discussed in that uh, eclipse episode. When, when you look back at ancient societies, and even not so ancient societies, um, astronomy and, uh, and cosmology are, are so linked together. Like it becomes the domain of the, of the, the priests and the clergy to know what the stars are doing to track the stars so that we know what the
1: uh, the calendar is telling us and when certain rites should be observed. Well, that makes me wonder if star tracking technology has entered religion, even ancient religion, in the same way the prayer wheel did. Yes, and that brings us to the astrolabe. The astrolabe.
0: Yeah, now everyone I think has probably seen an image of an astrolabe um, in their
1: finer forms. These are just works of just pure art. I'm going to tell you what I picture. Tell me how far off I am. Okay. Basically, it's it looks kind of like that compass you used to use in middle school math classes to draw a perfect circle mm-hmm. with another little half moon piece on it. Is that completely wrong?
0: Kind of, yeah. With varying levels of uh, of artistry and a lot of uh, figures and and sliding mechanisms. Okay. Yeah, it's a small circular device, and these would usually usually these would be made of wood or brass. Um, And uh, they date back over 2,000 years. The concept seems to originate around uh, 330 B.C.E., and they were perfected by the Arabs uh, in the ninth century, and they remained uh, the basic astronomer's tool for the next 700 years. It's essentially a model of the stars in the sky, which uh, can be moved to show where the stars will be at any time of the year. And the reverse side of the astrolabe uh, concerns the position of the sun and the moon. Okay, so it's a lot
1: like the Antikythera mechanism mm-hmm. in a way.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's portable. It has a large display. On top of that, if you have a really nice model, it's a beautiful work of art, something you might want to you know, easily show it off at the dinner table. Uh, it's arguably one of, if not the first personal computer, You know, mobile, carrying it with you, right. doing what you need to do in the course of a day. Now, the question is, would it become overheated if sitting on your lap? <laughs> if it was made out of metal and you were seated in the sun, I yeah. would say yes. Um, yeah, that's a sterility hazard. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh You couldn't get an app for this thing, but it had a number of uh, of features just by virtue of uh, of how it could track the the heavens. You could tell the date and time. You could calculate distances. Uh, It could be used in uh, determining a building height, surveying, uh, longitude, latitude, altitude, horoscopes. Um, You can uh, also uh, figure out the position of the planets. But then on top of this... There were uh, various occult uh, usages, so it gets a little bit into religion there, but the, the most notable function where we see the astrolabe becoming a piece of religious technology is in its ability to determine Islamic prayer times and determine the direction to Mecca.
1: Ah, okay. So this is actually that the, the piece of technology itself doesn't necessarily have religious significance, but there's a fact you need to know To Mm -hmm. execute your religion, you know, perfectly, the way you want to do it. If you want to face Mecca as well as you can, why not have a machine to help you really hone that piece of information and get it as accurate as possible?
0: Yeah, I mean, in a way, it really becomes an essential piece of technology in Islam. Because Islam places a high importance on the position of the believer in time and space. For starters, uh, the salat times—these are the the five prayers a day plus the Friday prayer—they depend. Uh, it depends on a combination of clock time and sundial time to determine exactly when these should take place. So it concerns the exact coordinates for a given location. Um, because again, it's not just it's not just arbitrary about when the prayer times are. They have they are right. specific depending on where you are in the world, about where you are in terms of sun time, and on top of this, the faithful has to know exactly where they are in relation to the Kaaba in Mecca so that they can face that
1: direction during these prayers. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, and. Unlike the prayer wheel, which itself does some sort of religious or spiritual work, mm-hmm. this is sort of like a technology that we use to be most properly informed about how to do the rituals that you would be doing anyway.
0: Because really, a lot of the problems that occur in a religion, they occur as the uh, believer moves uh, farther away in, uh, in time or space, right? Sure. So you're, 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 uh, you're farther away from Mecca uh... It, it's harder to determine exactly where you are uh... you're not necessarily gonna have uh... uh somebody signaling the prayer times each day from a tower so right. it falls on you to figure it out yourself and uh... and then that's where the technology becomes extremely useful
1: but of course there are lots of external influences on how we practice our religions a lot of these influences are actually going to be technological one of the things that i thought was interesting was to think about writing itself as a technology now writing is so crucial to the way we think of m- most of the major religions of the world today uh, because you've got the torah for jews you've mm-hmm. got the you know the hebrew bible plus the new testament for christians you've got the quran for muslims and, and and of course there are uh texts that are central to eastern religions as well mm-hmm. the ramayana and the mahabharata to be specific mm-hmm. certainly yeah and so w- we think about religion as a very text-based affair but there's really no reason it has to be i mean religions can be transmitted orally through culture they can be systems of cultural practices that don't necessarily have to be written down or encoded anywhere But for some reason, most of the world's major religions have a strong textual component. And I wonder how it changed the way we practiced religion when writing came into humanity. Because writing, I mean, human civilization is much older than writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, human life in general, human culture is even older than civilization, so much older than writing. So we can only really imagine, I think, I mean, I'm sure that, uh, some, like a cultural anthropologist or an archaeologist could tell us more about how they think writing might have changed the way we practice religions, but I really have no idea. Well, I mean, I, I think at heart you're probably dealing with the situation of, of, uh, of the expansion of memory,
0: right? Because yeah. writing is in essence the ability to externalize human memory. Before writing, uh, How we, that we could only contain as much as could fit in a human mind. Mm -hmm. Or if, maybe if you were, you know, really skilled at it, you might compartmentalize it, right? And have one person deal with the, with these memories versus the other. Almost a Fahrenheit 451 kind of situation. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, so, we, before writing, it's you're limited by just the, the, the power of the human mind to remember and then the ability to pass that on
1: to others. Which, of course, we know from everyday experience but also from actual studies, we, we don't pass on information all that faithfully if we don't write it down. Right. Memory itself
0: is not set in stone. Yeah. And uh, and then there's kind of a telephone game uh, anytime we pass something on. Anyt- really, anytime you remember something, you're taking it out, you're potentially changing it, and then putting it back in.
1: So, yeah, I have to imagine, though, of course, I, I could be wrong, that, uh, that as much as religious beliefs kind of change from generation to generation today, I have to imagine they changed even more and much more quickly in times before there were sort of like texts to anchor them. Yeah, before you could actually set a religion in stone, I imagine a re- religion... Really
0: just by virtue of how we remembered it, it changed with us. So. Yeah, it's very so, fluid. Yeah. So some of these problems we run into where, where we're saying, oh, alright, we're trying to uh, apply uh, ancient Babylonian cosmology to modern times. Part of that is uh, by virtue of depending upon ancient Babylonian cosmology set in stone and then, you know, and then that, that recording
1: of it is considered sacred and holy. Right. So these ancient writing technologies, we, we, of course, had the invention of alphabets, and I think it's very fair to consider an alphabet a technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on top of that, you just had the preservation technology. So you had scrolls, you eventually had codices, uh, you had, you know, tablets and carving and, and all the different pictograms and libraries and, and every bit of technology we had. But there was one big thing, I think, that that was the main textual technology that really revolutionized the world, and that would be the printing press. Yes,
0: yeah, we're talking about the, the mid fifteenth century in Europe, particularly old, old Gutenberg, old Gutenberg. Yeah, yeah, um, and his effect on the Bible, the Gutenberg Bible, uh, because prior to this, any given Western manuscript had to be copied by hand, and it
1: was generally this was uh, something that was uh, handled by uh, by the clergy. Right? Can you imagine this living in a world where So you look to the church as your, you know, as your authority on all things spiritual Mm -hmm. uh, and probably more than that, also all things government in some cases and and all that. But they have the Bible as the authority that's interpreted by the church. And so what is the Bible? Well, it is hand copied documents that most people don't have much access to. They might be because they're so rare. I mean, mm-hmm. they're kept in scriptoriums or libraries or these these places that the average person wouldn't have any access to. Yeah, they're
0: highly fetishized uh It's it's just not something that the average person would have access
1: to. And on top of that, the lack of a printing press means that there's really not much distributed commentary on the documents Mm -hmm. either. And this is something that uh, a lot of people would say played a big role in the Renaissance, Protestant Reformation, the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution. Uh, If you just look at the Protestant Reformation – you have to imagine the effect that the printing press had on not just the Bible itself, but on the distribution of Reformation propaganda. And I, I don't use the word propaganda there in a negative sense. I think that's just the term for yeah. all of the ways in which Reformation ideas were being spread throughout Europe at the time.
0: Yeah, it's really the kind of technological advancement in mass communication that you can you can really only compare it to, if not the... Um emergence of writing to begin with and perhaps the internet age right like, the, like such a big movement and such a a drastic change in our ability to communicate with one another and speaking of the scientific revolution uh that makes me think about the you know the whole notion of a, of a clockwork universe uh which i'm not going to get too deep into that uh, here That could easily be its own podcast but and you know, everyone's heard the idea of of, uh, of of a creator god as a watchmaker right um this creator makes the the perfect mechanical timepiece that is the universe, and then just lets it go. Maybe winds it first, I guess. Hopefully, winds it, and then lets it go because it doesn't need to, to be rewound or anything. It works perfectly as it's created. And this is an an example of you know a technological society, a society that has these technological ideas in its head, can't help but think about um, the unseen world in terms of those same mechanisms.
1: Right. I mean, it's very common to want to describe the actions of God in terms that we can understand. Right. And so, what do we
0: understand these you days? Know, making machines, machines, yeah. Machines, yeah. Uh, I, I haven't seen a lot of this, but I wonder to what extent, like, modern, like, email or jargon, etc., has has uh, made its way into, uh, you know, just average, say, Christian sermons. Uh, like, does anyone talk about um, communication with God, prayer itself
1: being a form of email? I do think a lot of the jokes now displayed on church signs come from email (laughs) forwards. Okay. Yeah, indeed. I believe
0: I saw one church marquee uh, here around town a few years back where they talked about sending God some quote knee mail. Oh, yeah. um, I've seen that one. Which, uh, I I thought, when I I read knee-mail, I was instantly thinking that sounds like a great name for some sort of a wrestling move, finishing (laughs) maneuver, right? Where you knee somebody in the head and you call it knee-mail. But they're, of course, talking about kneeling
1: uh, and then praying, which is a form of knee-mail. Oh, that's adorable. I love that. (laughs) Knee-mail. But getting back to the ways that external advances in technology have affected the progression of religions... One of the ways that I I think is very significant is looking at the way technology has changed the way we do work, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is the main thing technology does, and how that affects religious beliefs about how we should do work. Oh, you're talking, of course, about uh, Shabbat. Right, of course. So if you look at uh, the way some Jews interpret teachings in the Torah on uh, what should be done or not done on the Sabbath... There have been lots of ways in which new technologies have sort of intruded on the traditional understanding of what is accepted and forbidden to do on the day of rest. Right, this is sundown Friday to
0: sundown Saturday in which orthodox Jews are forbidden to work, right?
1: Which is interesting. Technology, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And to drive a vehicle, of course. Right. And so, of course, what you can guess from drive a vehicle is that a lot of these things aren't directly commandments stated in the Torah itself as an ancient document, Mm -hmm. but they're interpretations that have come from the rabbis throughout the years. Uh, about how we should apply the laws of the Torah to the new technological world we find ourselves in.
0: Right, because just by the basic laws uh, and like the 39 different activities that are off limits, um it would mean that you can't uh, cook or light a fire. And by
1: extension of that, the interpretation is that there would be no moving electricity through a circuit. Okay, so by this interpretation, really, if you want to be observant on the Sabbath, you should not press a button that causes an electrical device to turn on. Right,
0: and that's where it gets kind of tricky, because there's some obvious examples uh, that you you could say, well, don't turn on the vacuum cleaner. Okay, well, I'm not going to turn on the vacuum cleaner because I'm also not going to vacuum. Right. But then... You got to eat on on the, on the Sabbath, right? So, yeah. so what do you do about uh, opening
1: the refrigerator door? Oh, because when you open the refrigerator door, a light comes on. Exactly, and that's that your action yeah. of opening the door that has caused that light to ignite. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, for the longest, there was an easy workaround, right? You could either unscrew the bulb, or you just you tape up that little button, right?
1: Right. So, th- those are some pretty simple workarounds mm-hmm. for uh, that some Orthodox Jews might use, but. It, it gets more complicated than that in some scenarios
0: right for instance an, another classic workaround was uh, t- was uh, involved the use of an oven right because you need to heat up food you can't light your stove you can't uh, activate the oven by pushing the button but if you activate the oven you turn it on uh, before sundown um, on Friday and just leave it running through uh, and keep it warm you know through sundown on Saturday then you can make use of that heat you're You're just setting it in motion beforehand and then picking up after the Sabbath is done.
1: I'd imagine a lot of ovens today are programmed not to do that because they they don't want it would be a safety hazard to just leave an oven on and leave town or something. Yeah. So they probably have like an automatic shutoff, right? They do.
0: Yeah. An automatic uh, safety shutoff. And when they started uh, uh, using these, you know, they were getting complaints from people uh, who who needed uh, to keep their oven on in order to observe the religious practices so mm-hmm. this is where we get Sabbath mode on uh, <laughs> on various appliances, um, uh, not where they they play Sabbath albums right though that would that was certainly an innovation that would be uh, that would be great on on be, modern welcome in my house a black Sabbath uh, mode on your uh, your dishwasher, et etc but no, this would involve simply a manual override to the safety features so that you could operate your cooking technology in accordance
1: with your religious faith. You know, I bet that there are specific manufacturers that do this. There are.
0: Uh, and, and in fact, there's actually uh, something called Star K Kosher Certification for Appliances. Oh, wow. Yeah, you can actually go to their their website. It's star... Uh, K.org. And they have a lot of stuff uh, dealing with, with kosher you know, foods, what have you, but also in a whole system, a whole section on appliances where you can look up the appliances and see what their, their, uh, their potential uh, Sabbath modes are, how to activate them, how to use them in accordance uh, with these uh, rules and regulations. Uh, another classic example of, about the Shabbat and technology is the use of an elevator, right? Oh, Increasingly yeah. Increasingly, you need to use an elevator to move around in a, in a high-rise building, How do you do it if you can't push a button? Well, you just simply program the elevator uh, uh, during the Shabbat to uh, go from floor to floor to floor to floor, up and down, up and down, nonstop. And then you just get on and you
1: just ride the ride. Wow. Yeah. So that might be a long ride and a long wait, but at least you can observe your, your practices. Exactly. Another bit of
0: uh, religious technology we wanted to touch on real quick is uh, a 16th century clockwork monk created by Juanello Torriana, who was a, um, a mechanic for uh, Spanish Emperor Charles V. Mm-hmm. Now the Emperor's son, King Philip II, the story goes, was praying at the bedside of his own dying son, and he's getting desperate so he's making promises to the divine. He's promising a miracle for a miracle uh, if his child survives. He ends up recovering and he has to keep his promise. What kind of a miracle can uh, can a king actually do? Well, obviously, the king's going to um, consult, consult his mechanic. Right, consult yeah. his mechanic and uh, get him to create a miracle as, a, as kind of a an offering, right, as a, as a, as a thank you uh, to the divine. And so... Uh, that's where Juanello comes in, and he creates a key uh, wound spring operated uh, automaton, and a really complicated uh, automaton at that.
1: Yeah, I've seen pictures of this, and it's fascinating. You can like, I think there's a little compartment where you can peek in on the inside of it, and it's mm-hmm. got gears, and I, I don't, I couldn't begin to understand how it works on the inside, uh, but what does it actually do well I mean it it uh, it walks around
0: uh, in kind of a square shape it it strikes its chest with its right arm it raises and lowers a small cross and rosary with its left it occasionally kisses the cross uh, it turns and nods its head it rolls its eyes and it uh, mouths uh, you know silent prayers uh, and
1: whatnot wow. so so wait you said it strikes its chest so is this Is this auto automatic self-flagellation?
0: I don't think it's quite flagellation. Okay. (laughs) But but that would be a different – that would be an interesting – A different kind of gesture. Yeah. Um, But uh, some of you probably heard uh, a Radiolab episode uh, a few years back where they they did uh, like a short profile of this piece and sort of the mysteries uh, around it. Because there are a lot of questions regarding, you know, why – Why was this created? What's the exact purpose? You know, what was the the mindset in creating it? Mm -hmm. Is it simply an offering, uh, you know, to God? Is it it something you're supposed to put on the the table and you all sit around and pray pray
1: while observing it? Right. My question would be, does it do something relevant or is it more kind of like when a great painter or sculptor would create a work of art and dedicate it to the Lord? I
0: I think that seems to be the the prevalent interpretation, Mm -hmm. though, in light of what we talked about with the prayer wheel, it's. It's tempting to want to go that direction with it, you know, and think of it as a to think that like its prayers had some efficacy. Yeah, I mean, i, I I'm temp- I really want to believe that. I, I can, in good uh, in good faith, put that forward as as something that I think, or that even the, the majority of the experts think that the, was in the mind of of the king or uh, the mechanic responsible. But mm-hmm. uh, you, you can't help but but wonder uh, exactly how the mindset uh, uh, of, of the mechanic uh, played into it. And of course in our modern time um we've plenty of examples of of prayer taking place online uh you know, prayer groups etc sharing their concerns uh via the internet and I don't know to what extent they can you know they ever consider the email itself a prayer mm. uh but uh but certainly that seems like a line that, would, that will blur more and more as that becomes like standard practice right because certainly uh at some point the written word uh, and uh, became holy, right? Sure. And then uh, I can't help but, but imagine that uh, the, uh, in the advent of the printing press, maybe initially the printed word was a little less holy, a little more manufactured. Sure. But then that becomes uh, uh, you know, de facto holy as well.
1: Right. Well, this is the other side of the advance of the, the textual technology uh, mm-hmm. pr- pr- progression. Because religion is so inherently social in, in most the ways most people practice it and it's something that deeply does involve communication between groups and so uh, allowing greater communication between people who think alike or want to offer each other uh, religious advice or interpretation or consolation. The, the internet's obviously going to be a, a huge explosion in that. But it's also not just a, a, a peer-to-peer exchange, right? So you can have your sort of, like your religious, you know, email circle where you forward each other the, the things that, you know, you want to show to your friends and your peers in the church. You can also have services provided by church officials over telecommunications links. Indeed.
0: And, uh, you know, here's a question that comes to mind here. If it's, uh, if it's blasphemous to, um, to burn or to face a religious text, such as the Bible or the Quran. Mm-hmm.
1: What if you deleted uh, an, an ebook of it? Is that oh man? Is that is that blasphemous? I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure some people have opinions on that. Yeah, I I personally do not. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and we haven't even mentioned exorcism. Online. Right. Well, that would be one of those services that could be offered by, you know, your religious official who might be so far away. What if they're in a cabin in Alaska that uh, hopefully has a fast Internet connection, uh, but they want to offer the spiritual service that you really need? And that might be the exorcism of a demon or multiple demons from your person.
0: Right. And there are individuals who have and continue to offer online exorcism services. Uh, back in 2009, uh, famed Israeli Kabbalah master Rabbi Batri, uh attempted to remove a dybbuk, a disembodied spirit, from a Brazilian man via the Internet. And more recently, uh, we've uh, seen uh, evangelical Reverend Bob Larson offering uh, exorcisms for a fee, of course, uh, via Skype. And this uh, this was actually featured on the Daily Show several months back. So, oh, really? Yeah. So I imagine uh, I didn't see that. Imagine uh, a number of our listeners uh, caught it there.
1: Yeah, that sounds way more interesting than the uh, video conferencing that we have here at work. Yeah, but
0: you know, ultimately, what's I don't see what the big big deal is because if if an exorcism involves like this rite by which you're driving a spiritual invader out yes. it's essentially the, the demon is kind of Telecommuting
1: through an individual, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it seems to me that the ideology behind an exorcism would suggest that it's a, it's an interpersonal connection that breaks the power of the demon. It's sort of the spiritual or emotional or intellectual presence of the clerical official that can drive the demon out, not so much the physical presence. Like, why would they really need to be in the room?
0: Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, I think we both recently rewatched portions or the entirety of, uh, the uh the, the Hellraiser bloodlines movie <laughs> where uh, an individual you well, of course you know really just technology right the lament configuration is a little mechanical device and you solve it and right. the demons show up the Cenobites show up and in that uh, movie there's an individual that's cheating right by trying by solving it virtually or or remotely by
1: use of a robot right yes he's he's using essentially the technology of a bomb disposal robot mm-hmm. but to solve the lament configuration puzzle box and inside does it, a containment room uh, initially, it works, but then some some people who are not very technologically savvy are like, "Well, we got to solve this problem." They open the door to the room where the Cenobites are contained, and then there's a big problem.
0: But that's interesting. Initially, they're able to outmaneuver the technologically uh, empowered demons that are the Cenobites via more advanced technology. Right. They can put those Cenobites in a box
1: inside a box. <laughs> exactly inside a box.
0: All right, so that's going to be the end of part one here. This is very much, again, a two-part series.
1: Yeah, and if you want to hear the conclusion of that story that we started this episode with, the construction of the electromechanical messiah at the High Rock Tower in Lynn, Massachusetts, that's going to be in our next episode. So that's going to be in part two. Indeed, and we're also
0: going to get into some, uh, some wonderful UFO uh, and Scientology territory as well. So... Uh hey, if you're if you're listening to this episode as it comes out, just wait a couple of days and you'll get the second part. Uh if you're catching up on this uh at a later point, uh, I will make sure that there is a link to the second episode uh on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes, all the videos, all the blog posts, plus links out to our social media accounts such as
1: Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to let us know about any interesting thoughts you have or stories you've ever experienced about the intersection of religion and technology or even the complete synthesis and marriage of religion and technology, email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Yeah.